this is the thing that like doesn't get talked about publicly a lot is like I was starting to work with like really credible projects. You know, like I was working with Ave and Rocket Pool and Balancer and all these projects that I had really looked up to and like, you know, hopping on calls with the founders every week, talking about how to develop community, talking about governance strategies, like helping them think through their messaging on Twitter. And it kind of went from me just being like a public market participant to actually being like someone that was helping influence the direction of these projects on a very, very minute level. Welcome to the very first episode of the Web3 Podcast. My name is Dragos, or as my American friends like to call me, Dragos, and I'll be your host on this channel. I started the podcast because as I'm looking at the sentiment today where we are in the depths of a bear market, it's very similar to how it was in 2018, 2019. Sure, maybe it's not as bad because we think crypto is going to be here. Now we really believe it's going to be here for the long term. But back in 2018, 2019, we were in a similar situation. And as I'm looking back during that time period, I was traveling a lot, meeting a lot of people. I really wanted to grow my network. And I met a lot of really cool people who believed in crypto a lot. And now they've gone on to do really interesting stuff. They really drove the space forward during these past three, four years. And they're they're quote-unquote influencers or personalities that are really well thought of in the space. And I was curious, what did they do during the past bear market? Because this is the time to take advantage, um, to build, to build your network, to realize the most gains, to discover the projects that will do the best in the next cycle. And one of those people that I met in 2018 is Cooper. Now, I met Cooper in, I think it was December or November. It was the day uh, right after Bitcoin broke down from 6K. I remember the sentiment was absolutely horrible. Uh, We could just laugh about it. We met to play basketball in Thailand. And back then, Cooper was just traveling to conferences just like I did. And he was writing uh, for a blog that covered this new thing called DeFi. And going from there to where he is now, is a huge, huge achievement. Like he really outperformed this past cycle. And part of the reason for this was he was early to a lot of trends. So that's something interesting that I wanted to explore in this episode. He was early to DeFi, he was early to NFTs. And if you've been following Cooper, you've been aware of him, you know, in the past, let's say one and a half years, he's been really driving forward this uh, narrative of music NFTs. And we dive into that as well after we go into his entire Genesis story and how he got to where he is. And then we explore the idea of music NFTs. We dive into his fund, Coop Records, and how he's allocating the funds that he raised to take advantage of this wave, this narrative that he's foreseeing with music NFTs. But what I also like is that he emphasizes why it's not just about the the return on investment with these things you know it's not just about buying early people artworks before people was famous um the same you know for the mu- music nft artists that will maybe be, be big in two three years but it's also about changing the way the music industry works and generating an alternative revenue stream for up-and-coming artists 
outside of you know the the streaming and everything else that they do which we know is not enough for most of them so i think it's a really interesting conversation both about how to approach crypto and how to be successful in crypto and a really interesting new vertical that um i think will be big in a few years but anyway i don't want to take away from the conversation let's just dive in and we're live on the very first episode of the Web3 Podcast. I'm joined here by Cooper Turley, a.k.a. Coop, a.k.a. Koopa Troopa, a.k.a. Music NFTs. How are you doing, man? I'm doing wonderful, man. I am thankful to be here and very blessed to be the first guest on the podcast. Yes, it is a, a big honor to have you on here. I've known you since 2018, so we go back a while. Um, my first question was, uh, during the past week, what was the best uh, Asai that you had and what rating did you give it? Oh, we have a new spot called Ritual Assay in Silver Lake. It's a very, very wonderful spot. We're going with a solid 8.8. 8.8. Okay, that's that's a big that's a big rating, right? Oh, it's a big one. That's right. Nice, 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 nice. So I wanted to I wanted to dive. I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just gonna go straight into it. Um, you're basically someone that I met at the very depths of the bear market in 2018. I think we were we were playing a basketball game in Thailand and I, I, I think Bitcoin had just broken down from 6K to 3K and we were all there just, we didn't even know what to feel anymore. Um, and we just played some basketball, just talked about what we were doing. And back then I remember you were just uh, backpacking, staying in hostels and just going to crypto conferences and writing a, a DeFi blog, I think it was back then. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, time has passed and now you're one of the most recognizable figures on crypto Twitter. You've made it, you know, by, by a lot of people's standards. And now you're like super focused in your zone on what you're passionate about. And I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning because I think we're in a very similar time right now where the market is kind of dying down. All the mania of 2021 is kind of past us. You know, all the moon boys are, are desperate and, you know, they, they can't really um, justify being in the market anymore. And we're stuck here, you know, less and less people are paying attention and it's time to dig down and, and build. And I think it would be really helpful for people who have just gotten into crypto right now and want to stay here long term to find out what the top performers of this cycle did in preparation, because the preparation always comes in the bear market. So how about you tell us first how you got into crypto? I think it was 2017. Is that correct? Yeah, 2017. I was coming out of school. I was studying music business and I didn't really see a career for myself in the music industry at that point in time. You know, it was a big passion of mine, but I don't think that the industry was set up for me to be able to survive off of it financially. And so I started to hear about crypto, like early ICO wave, you know, one of my professors in school was talking about smart contracts. This was kind of the days when Binance had just launched, you know, there's a lot of these ICOs happening pretty regularly. And at that point in time, I just got excited about being involved with the culture around it. You know, I thought, hey, here's a design space that you can be self taught and you don't need to have a formal education or background. It's very much just an internet culture game, like being in the right telegram group at the right time was pretty much all you needed to do. And so I kind of just dove headfirst into it. You know, I was participating in a lot of different ICO projects with friends, reading white papers, writing white papers, you know, going on sites like ICO drops and just kind of following up with whatever was happening at the time. You know, I think that this was like the first wave of crypto that I really felt kind of this whole mentality around like a hype cycle and the ability to really like make money off of that. And so to be honest, I really love just kind of trading tokens in the public market. You know, I was going on these exchanges, you know, very early user on Binance and KuCoin and some of these other exchanges and just having a good time with it. You know, waking up every morning and checking coin market cap, seeing what the top gainers were of the day and really just like as a as a young kid out of school, just kind of doing whatever I could to survive. Ether Delta, Liquid.io. Those are the all good above. times. All the above. 
<laughs> so how, because you are just a student, right? And and you're now in a position where like you just launched a $10 million fund. You're, people could look at you and say, hey, you know, it's like easy for you to talk about all this advice right now because you're really well positioned. You can do a lot of stuff. But back then, you didn't, where did you get your starting capital? Like how did you actually get started? Uh, I was delivery driving. I was driving for Uber and I was taking the money that I made doing odd jobs and investing that into Bitcoin and ETH. And so I'd probably put in like a couple thousand dollars here and there. And at that point in time, a couple thousand dollars got you, let's call it 10 ETH. And that 10 ETH was used really just to invest actively in the ecosystem. You know, the funniest thing was like 2017, I saw my net worth like really balloon and come all the way crashing down. You know, I put in a couple thousand dollars that turned into a substantial amount of money. And then 2018 happened and all of it came crashing back down to zero. Now, I actually took zero profit in that last cycle. Like I literally rode the whole thing up and rode the whole thing back down. And 2018 came and I was basically like, okay, I have $10,000 in my bank account. I was living at home at my parents' house after I graduated. And I was like, what can I do with this money? I'm just going to use it to travel the world and try and meet other people in the space that I can hopefully build a network around me that sets me up well for the next cycle whenever it does happen. Wow, that's insane. So 2017, basically, you were... Because the tech was kind of primitive. We all kind of believed in the promise of what it could deliver, but we weren't really using it. We were just trading tokens on centralized exchanges for the for the majority of the time. But we all believed in this vision. Uh, so you're just like trading ICOs and stuff like that. You didn't work like deeply on a project or get involved at a level, you know, like marketing or anything else of projects. You're just like just trading ICOs. Well, it's kind of a hybrid. So I think at first it was basically just trying to find the token that was going to get listed on Binance or Coinbase. So like there was like the XVG verge moments where you had these tokens going up 5,000% over like seven days. And that was what everyone was kind of chasing was this like fleeting high where you could buy a token for, you know, a couple cents when it had like a 20 mil market cap and then sell it when it had like a 200 mil market cap five days later. And so that was kind of like the name of the game. But then what happened is there was an entire class of entrepreneurs who thought, okay, I can use crypto to fund my startup that would never otherwise get funded if I just put the word blockchain onto it. And so what that meant for me as someone who was actively following these market cycles was, let me go out on sites like, um, you know, ICO Bench and sites like Fiverr and Upwork and kind of like uh, AngelList and all these, you know, kind of freelance sites and try and figure out how I can get involved with some projects at the ground floor. You know, basically just anyone who was new to the space and didn't have a pulse on the market, I would come in um, hopefully get like $5,000. But for the vast majority of these early contracts I had, I was just kind of working for exposure, like with the founder who was trying to make it in crypto, didn't know anything about the market. And I was kind of their like trusted guide on like what sites you needed to be listed on, what telegram groups to be paying attention to, how to write your white paper, how to develop a community. And to be completely honest, none of those tokens ever even launched. And so it was basically just a year of me like working in Web3, but not getting paid to work in Web3 and just kind of slaving away, like writing white papers and doing things to survive. But during that time, I really got to see the difference between, you know, the projects that were getting funded and really like capturing the mainstream attention versus like people trying to do crypto that weren't able to do it successfully. And that kind of gave me both like this front row seat of being a participant in a public market and then like working behind the scenes for a pre-launch project and kind of seeing all the nuance that went into that process. Gotcha. And then fast forward to 2018, basically you said you just held everything all the way down. I was in a somewhat similar position, drew down like 90%, especially back then when we met in Thailand, it was like, it just completely hit me like, oh, this is what I have left. This is crazy. Um, what was your focus during the bear market? Like when, when did you actually, did you hold on to some hopium 
like this is going to come back because I did up until the breakdown from 6K, I still thought it would come back. And then reality hit. Like how, how was your, your thought process throughout 2018? Well, I knew that Web3 and crypto as a whole would come back. I just wasn't as sure about the individual tokens. I basically just kept consolidating into like more and more convicted positions until I ultimately basically just had like ETH and Bitcoin. But for a long time, there was like certain projects. I was like, oh, no, this project's going to do super well. They're going to come back. They have a strong team, a strong roadmap. And then you kind of had the realization that the vast majority of projects from the last cycle are not going to survive. You know, when there is a new wave of interest, it's going to flow into a new project. And so I cut all my losses, you know, basically just sold into ETH. I was going to all these conferences in Southeast Asia where I met you at and really just trying to get a pulse on the market. And that's what really just kind of like made me aware of the fact that like 99% of this is bullshit because you would go to these events and you would see these people at these booths and you'd be talking to them about what they were working on. It was all just so random and vague and there was just nothing to grab onto. You know, it was like concepts and then a team had 10 mil in the bank from their ICO, but they were building like a phone or they were trying to build like you know, some like global computing network for baby food and like all this other shit that like at the time was like a leading narrative, but behind it, like didn't really have any usage. And at that point in time, if you had a working product that like even touched anything Web3, like you were like crushing it, you know, like if you had like a wallet, like a mobile wallet or something, you could like deposit tokens into and make a transaction. That was like the the leading standard. And so I think for me, it was really just trying to unlearn like what was relevant at the time because the whole name of the ICO game was basically just trading the hype, right? It was like, how much do people think that this idea is cool? How much money are they able to get in an ICO? And how connected are they to exchanges to trade that token after they complete their ICO? But it had nothing to do with like the competency of the team, nothing to do with like them actually being able to develop a product or a roadmap or anything like that. And so 2018, you know, to your point, when we were in Thailand, um, I was traveling with my friend Lucas. Uh, he's a writer at Bankless now, an editor at Bankless, and just like a really, really close friend of mine. And we were in Thailand and just like basically like looking at our bank accounts and be like, did we make a huge mistake by like working in Web3? You know, we were fresh out of college. We both said like we don't want to pursue a traditional career path with our degrees. Like we want to be full time in Web3. And at that point in time, it was a ghost town. You know, like like you said, Bitcoin had just gone down to 3K. I think ETH went down to like $80 or something like that. And we were both just like looking at the scraps in our bank account being like, how are we going to survive? But the thing that kind of kept me going was like we were in Thailand we were traveling, we were doing whatever we wanted, we were working on whatever we wanted, we were spending our time making money on the internet. And so when you took a step back, it's like, okay, this might not be like the most financially viable career right now. But in terms of like fulfillment, in terms of how to like live my life doing what I want to be doing, you know, for example, me and you were playing basketball in Thailand in the middle of Bangkok, like, who would have thought that was even possible. And so you kind of had these small silver linings. And then through that time, that really helped me like wade the waters and wait until DeFi started to come to the picture. And I think when the early days of DeFi started to take form, that's when I kind of recognized that, okay, here's another sector that we can really gravitate toward that feels like it has a lot more merit than the ICO era of the past, let's call it 12 to 18 months. Yeah, that's one of the questions that I had next, because you've, you're someone who, throughout the bull market, even before you re-nailed narratives, like you were there early for a lot of the, the stuff. And I remember you were writing... The way you started now with Music NFTs doing a newsletter, like what, what's happening in Music NFTs, you did the same thing with DeFi back then. How, how did you come to the realization that DeFi would be an important narrative? And how did that help you position for the bull run? Because I, I know you were, I think it was Ave was one of your positions that you re-nailed. Like you were super early to a lot of good stuff. How, like take me through your thought process of how you identified these new narratives and how you positioned for them. 
Yeah, so coming out in 2018, Lucas and I were looking to just find work wherever we could. And so what this looked like was us doing thought pieces on different trends in crypto. So at the time, this was like, write a report on Bitcoin having, write a report on like blockchain gaming, like write a report on like the future of decentralization. And we kind of had all these vague topics. Then we started doing something called Token Tuesdays, which was like, look at a project, break it down, talk about why it was exciting, like really look at their roadmap, try and run like discounted cash flow if possible, and just like really start to analyze these projects from, you know, a very granular level. At that point in time, that started to get the attention from a couple of these early blog and media platforms. So um, there was one called DeFi Rate, where the founder of that kind of reached out to me and Lucas to be like, hey, I want you to start publishing articles about this. Um, the Define and Bankless were two others where these guys were regularly like covering this sector and looking for more writers. And I think the biggest thing that made that relevant to me before we talk about why DeFi was a trend was I was getting paid to write these blocks. You know, like I was getting like something like 25 cents a word to basically publish like a 500 word article once a day, um, round that up into a weekly recap. And so for me, this allowed me to get paid in real time to like write about the things that were relevant. And so it was really just sort of watching the market and kind of seeing where the trends went. And at the time that I started to cover DeFi, this is when, you know, MakerDAO started to pop up. Um, Uniswap started to pop up, Compound, Aave started to pop up, uh, Kyber Network, Synthetics, etc. Like there was kind of like this early wave of projects that I could tell were like very different from like the ICO projects of the past. Like these had working products, you could go and connect to your MetaMask and then do some on-chain transaction. Granted, it was all like very financial related, like stake your Ether and then get a, a loan of DAI against it or like, you know, stake Synthetics and then like trade these like options protocols and whatnot. But you know, the, the kind of through line there was like, you could actually do something with your wallet. Like in the ICR, you basically just mm -hmm. sent ETH yep. to an address and then got other tokens back. And if you were savvy, you could trade them on Ether Delta, but you can never like use these products. And so I think when I noticed that there was competent people building products that you could actually use, I was like, okay, here's a sector that's worth covering. And I think it really just snowballed, you know, like those early projects ended up having like a lot of credence and credibility. I was writing about them a lot from a DeFi blog. I was actively contributing to governance forums and trying to help them you know, think about how to build their community and just be valuable wherever I could. And then thankfully, what happened is a lot of these projects either launched the token through an airdrop, or they just, you know, ended up becoming the better performing projects of 2019, because they really pivoted their roadmap to be involved in this new narrative, and were able to sort of capture liquidity and attention in a way that I think that the vast majority of projects in the past were unable to do. Okay. And I guess one part of it is like, obviously you're researching and you're getting an, a lot of knowledge, um, which people could do right now um, as well with these new, you know, new narratives that might pop up. Even though granted now, there's much more to look at, I think, than in 2018, 2019. But how much of it is also, apart from your personal conviction, the, the circles or the communities that you get into through the work that you put out? Because that also gives you conviction, right? When you get into the right groups. And I feel like a lot of people in crypto are stuck in echo chambers where they're like, they think they have access to a lot of information, but they actually don't know a lot of the other stuff that is happening. And I'm not talking about like, you know, behind the door deals and stuff like that. Just, they just don't know of new developments in different sectors. And when a new token pops up, they have no idea why that narrative is taking place. Like, did that also happen to you? And how important was that? That was the entire name of the game, was basically just like looking for signal from other valuable actors in the ecosystem. And I remember some of my like biggest quote unquote wins at the time was when I would be publishing these blogs and get follows from like people in crypto that I really looked up to, you know, like some of these people that were running crypto venture funds at the time, like bigger um, media podcasters and people that were sort of discovering the space. And that to me just really signaled like, hey, I think I'm onto something here because there's people who have followings that are kind of like acknowledging my work as being valuable. 
And so just broadly speaking, the kind of cool part about it back then was DeFi was really the only thing that was happening broadly. I mean, there's obviously like these small little pockets elsewhere, but like that narrative was pretty much all encompassing for Web3 at the time. And so it was very easy to start like narrowing in on like, okay, if this is the the direction that I'm going in, how do I get signal from the people that are involved with this to kind of figure out like where their attention is pointing? Because it actually did have a lot of similarities to like ICOs in the sense that it was just kind of like follow the right project at the right time, be able to kind of read the tea leaves on like where people are directing their attention. And um, for me, I think that that all just came from developing a strong network on Twitter, you know, being in a couple of telegram groups and being on these forums. And what I would say would be different from today is that I wasn't getting signal by just like blindly following people on Twitter and waiting for them to like post the TA chart about like if Bitcoin was going to moon, like all of my network was being built, like doing work for these projects. Like I would go to a governance forum and be commenting really deeply on like tokenomics proposal or product upgrade. You know, I was in these telegram groups, like talking very deeply about like project roadmaps, or like you said, I was going to these conferences IRL where like it took a special person to want to fly to like a DevCon in Osaka or something like that and be like, Hey, like I'm going to figure out how to scrape together $5,000 round trip in the bottom of a bear market to go hang out with a bunch of nerds that are building DeFi protocols. But that's what really separated kind of like the, you know, the influencers on YouTube from kind of like the credible people that we're building. And those two aren't mutually exclusive, but this was broadly my sentiment. It was like, who's willing to show up and put in the work. And I think even if you take aside the DeFi sector, that's just kind of the signal that I look for across any vertical of Web3 is just like, what communities are showing up actively and putting in the work. And when they are putting in that work, what are they outputting that feels valuable? And if you can just have like a radar for that, I think that that's the kind of compass that I use to follow trends in Web3, irregardless of where the ball is heading at any given time. How do you think that changes now, like today in 2022 with all the stuff? Because it's not only Ethereum and it's not only DeFi anymore. There's like so many blockchains. Some, like how would you approach it now? Because I, I don't think, I don't know if any one person has time to actually dive into everything. So you either, how do you acquire the general knowledge or how do you decide what you specialize in? Yeah, I think it's about developing conviction. You know, I'd say that my career in Web3 has broadly been like backing into my thesis around like where I think the industry is headed. And what that means is it's impossible to keep up with all of these sectors. I see a lot of funds that try and be like really generalized funds investing in everything. But to your point, it's getting so vast and so deep across the board that it's really hard to have like specialty in one area if you're focused on everything. So instead, I would recommend that people just find the one pocket that they are personally uniquely talented to have an opinion around and then just focus only on that. You know, like recognize that there are different projects and sectors outside of what you're focused on that'll probably have a couple wins there. But, you know, come to peace with the fact that you're not going to catch every trade and instead just focus on like the one vertical that you're uniquely positioned in. And that's kind of why I'm so heavily focused on the music vertical now is because I quickly realized like, hey, maybe this isn't the vertical that's like popping. There's not a ton of money to be made here, but I really like it. I think I have a very unique position to actually influence the sector in a very heavy way. And so I'm comfortable, you know, putting things like DeFi and DAOs and cross-chain interoperability to the side. I'll keep up with those narratives residually through my friends on Twitter. But in terms of where I'm going to spend like all of my waking time, I'm going to use it in a space that I have a lot of potential to help like steer in the right direction and make sure that all of my time is spent really just developing a brand and a voice around that one specific sector. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We'll get to music NFTs in a bit, but I wanted to ask you, like psychologically, how did it feel? Like, could, can you go back and point to like a breakthrough moment when you actually realize, because I'll tell you how it was for me and tell me if it was the same thing for you. I had kind of this naive belief. Like I, I, I remember thinking like, I'm going to hold on to my ETH and I know ETH is going to get it to a new all-time high in the next few years. But there was also some 
part of me that was naive in thinking that because I was kind of, it was almost like I wanted it to happen, right? I didn't have, obviously I couldn't know for sure that it was going to happen. I couldn't have known how things would turn up. Was there a point where you had a breakthrough in your positioning and the stuff that you were doing? And how did it feel once you realized, holy shit, I was actually right about this. And this, all this stuff is actually going to deliver. It's going to take me where I think it's going to take me. Because for lots of people, it might, you know, we're at a point now where we can use this tech for different stuff, but it feels like user adoption where people can just use crypto on their phone and, you know, you just don't feel like you're using crypto is far, far away with a lot of other stopping points like regulation and all sorts of stuff that might be in the way. How, like, how much is, how worth it is it when you get to that point? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to zoom in on a specific moment because there's a couple layers to unpack here. But I would say um, ETH Denver, directly before the pandemic, there was kind of this moment when ETH went from like $80 up to like $350 over the course of like, I don't know, maybe like three or four weeks or something like that. And you could just kind of feel this momentum. You know, I think a lot of the DeFi projects at the time were starting to trade very well. Like things like Aave were up probably like a thousand percent. Things like Synthetics were up like a thousand percent, et cetera. And some of these early plays that I think everyone had you know, conviction around, we're really starting to like trade at a very high level. You know, there was a lot of excitement around like tokens being listed on Uniswap. And it felt like it was kind of the evolution of like the early 2017 era. But now instead of it just being like some random dog coin, it was kind of like a project that had a founder that was very competent. They were doing on-chain governance. You know, there was a lot of these retroactive airdrops happening where if you were an active user of these protocols, you were getting tokens that represented ownership in the network. And so there was just a lot of like narratives that were happening. But I think that that you know, East Denver conference was really pivotal to me because the trades were going well, which was exciting. But then more broadly, like it felt like I finally had community and I felt like I had like a family in the space. You know, when I was at that conference, I was seeing a lot of people that I know, um, you know, I was able to like meet people that I hadn't through like my writing and whatnot. I was able to like talk to a lot of different people. I remember meeting like Anthony Sassano for the first time in person. It just kind of like really solidified like the virtual IRL connections. And remind you in the past when I was going to like Thailand conferences, that was just like the most random projects in the world. There was not really like through lines, like maybe we'd play basketball, but there wasn't really like a collective consciousness there. It was just kind of like, oh, we're just all in crypto. But I think for those like early Ethereum developer conferences, ETH Global events, DevCon, et cetera, when you would go to these spaces, you would see people that you really respected and you'd be able to have like really mature moments with them. And so it was kind of this like compounding effect of like, the tokens were starting to trade well. I was making friends. And then most importantly, this is the thing that like doesn't get talked about publicly a lot is like I was starting to work with like really credible projects. You know, like I was working with Ave and Rocket Pool and Balancer and all these projects that I had really looked up to and like, you know, hopping on calls with the founders every week, talking about how to develop community, talking about governance strategies, like helping them think through their messaging on Twitter. And it kind of went from me just being like a public market participant, actually being like someone that was helping influence the direction of these projects on a very, very minute level. And to me, being able to have the signal that I'm actually bringing value to the table because I'm getting paid to like do something beyond just like trade some tokens on exchanges. That to me is what signaled like, okay, like not only do I have conviction in where this market's headed, I'm actually being brought in by industry leaders to help them like think through their strategies. And I think that to me kind of gave me the confidence that like this sector was headed in a proper position. And I was finally in a place where I could be working with you know, some of the best projects to help kind of steer the direction of the industry as a whole. Okay, so you basically worked for two, three years, worked your ass off, figured out how the industry works, put out a lot of content, built your personal brand, built a following on Twitter, built some credibility, which 
gave you leverage to actually participate in the conversation with these projects and it kind of snowballed from there. What advice would you give? Let's assume there's like a smart crypto newbie right now. He's been through the 2021 cycle. Uh, he held throughout 2022 because he thought the market would come back and you know he drew down like 80, 90% on his portfolio. And now he or she wants to replicate the same journey that you had. What advice would you give them? And maybe even more importantly, what advice should they ignore? I would give you the advice to find three key projects that you want to learn everything about, you know, like really, really get in the trenches, get to know the founders, get to know the community managers, get to know their roadmap and find ways just to contribute in a way that feels very meaningful to you. Like, don't worry about trying to develop like a broad set brand across the space. Just try and find some projects that are really interesting to you so you can start to develop a working relationship with the project instead of just being a trader. Um, The biggest thing to ignore would be like thinking that all your projects are going to come back, like sort of like you said, the echo chamber, like, oh, no, our project's going to come back and like the floor will go up again. Because the reality is 99% of the floors will not come back up again. There will be 1% of the projects who do end up doing extremely well. And your goal is to be able to ignore all of the 99% of projects who think they're going to be that 1% and instead be in a position where you can catch that 1% of projects when they do start to perform well in the next cycle. And more importantly, recognize that there is going to be an entirely new generation of projects that will win the next cycle that have not been created yet. So putting yourself in a position where you can really read the tea leaves to know, okay, when the next narrative starts to be developed, and there are new projects that, you know, embody and represent that narrative that you can kind of be at the front lines to be able to allocate capital towards it. That makes a lot of sense. And if you were to start now, if 2017 Coop were to get into Web3 right now, what would you do? Well, this is extremely biased because it's totally self-fulfilling, but um, I would be just like researching all of the leading artists in the space, you know, finding creators that I think I could help develop a brand around and then doing anything and everything that I could to interview them, write reports about them, like develop a relationship and just sort of build a name for myself as like a curator, um, you know, journalist, operator, someone who's just kind of helping to advance the space, not with capital, but with the time that I have and really helping to you know, translate the stories that are happening every day at the ground floor. Okay, but you would be focusing mostly on culture, music, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm in LA now. I think uh, that was always the goal, you know, like it was always the goal just to be like investing in culture, like kind of covering whatever like the latest trend was in sort of future of technology. And it just happened to be ICOs and then it happened to be DeFi and then it happened to be DAOs and then NFTs. But I think now we're at the point where like Web3 is so common that like you can really pick any vertical. And I was actually talking to someone yesterday and they were telling me about how they like have all these people on these speaker series and they always talk about how, you know, they come from like a really crazy situation or they found Web3 through some like cypherpunk, like, you know, fuck the system type vibe. And I just kind of realized that I'm saying that I'm like, yo, when you're getting into Web3 today, like it's not that deep. Like you don't have to come from them like, disparage past where you're like this kind of rebel kid who's like now like using crypto. It's like, it's not that deep. Like you can just like, buy a picture of a J like of a monkey or you can like you know collect a song or you can just like you know trade two tokens but I think like the evolution from the past to now is it's no longer like counterculture to be in web3 I think it's actually the opposite where people just like laugh at you if you like are in web3 right this second because it became so mainstream and now it's not but the silver lining there is that like everyone pretty much already knows what this shit is you know like it's not like they have like full awareness and conviction on where it's going to go but if you just say to someone like walking down the street like hey have you heard of nfts I'd say probably like four out of 10 people like have heard of that term before. Like maybe they don't know exactly what it means, but that's very different from like 2018. If you said like, hey, do you know what DeFi is? Like I can promise you like one out of 100 people might know what that is, but there's sort of a lot more awareness of the space. And so the benefit of that is that if you are getting started today, you don't have to be as like worried about like betting your 
career on this industry because it's never been more obvious that there's going to be a long, long history of this asset class over the next 10, 20, 100 years. And so I think that there's a little bit more comfort in just sort of diving in and really carving out a niche for yourself. It's easier to have conviction today. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's way easier than it was in 2018, 2019. Yeah. Have you had any failures or any points at which you wanted to quit crypto? Um, No, because I just look at everything as like a really big learning experiment. You know, I think if I had to like point to like what some people would call failures, um, there was an esports DAO that I started called MetaClan with some of my friends. And this was the first like crypto gaming DAO. There was probably like 50 people that all put like 100 die into a pot and we used it to like run an Axie breeding tournament. And our intent was to basically just like be active across all these different like Web3 gaming platforms and have this one like giant community treasury that had all the rarest assets in the world. And, um, you know, to, to my fault and a couple other people is like, we just didn't really maintain the project. We like did the first couple tournaments and then we're like, okay, this is a lot of work. And so we just never really ended up doing anything with it. But, you know, the funny part is like that DAO ended up being some of the early inspiration for things like Yield Guild. And like, you know, it was honestly like in a lot of ways where a lot of the Axie community aggregated for very early on prior to like that token launching. And so there definitely have been instances where there have been projects that I haven't like stayed with forever. They kind of felt more like, moment in time like fun experiments but i would say that the common commonality is that i just like to try things out and get the learning from the experiments from it like i'm okay and comfortable to say like okay maybe this isn't going to go up 100x or make a bu- people a bunch of money but you'll never find a project where i'm just like there to make money and then dip after i've made my money like it's basically always like i just want to create value for the members of this community and if it ends up making money along the way that's great but like that's not my focus to make money my focus is to help connect people to one another and build relationships around something that they love. And if I can sort of be at the center of that as like some form of co-founder, operator, et cetera, then I think that that's a win, even if that community doesn't end up panning out and existing for like the next five or 10 years. Okay, I get it. So you you basically go head first, try a lot of stuff. You're not afraid to break things. You get a lot of, a lot of stuff done. What does your, like, your routine look like? What, what keeps you so driven? How do you, do you still work as much now in the bear market as you did in the bull market? Yeah, I'd say I'm working more now than I was during the bull market. I think the bull market was very much like celebratory, like going to these different NFT conferences, like going to concerts and events and meeting friends and like, you know, you know, smiles, laughs, music, etc. But now it's like there's not really as much of that happening. So you really do have to double down again. But um, to answer your question about my routines, you know, I meditate every morning before I get started for work. I think that's extremely important. I'll typically line up anywhere from like five to 15 calls a day just to help stay connected with all the various actors in this space. And then I have about, let's say, three to five key projects on my plate at any given time where I'm sort of like acting as a point person to like achieve some outcome, whether that's like launching a token or, you know, Uh, helping an artist do like an NFT drop or that's like setting up my fund or like, you know, figuring out all these different ways that I can help like elevate my brand. I sort of have like a key milestone that I'm like pushing towards it every time. And then uh, throughout the day, you know, like around six or seven, I'll kind of like unpack and grab a quick bite to eat and then I'll pop another Medi, uh, you know, meditate again. And then I'll kind of go into it for a second shift. And it's really that later part of the day where I get a lot of my deep work done. And so if the current like day to day nine to five is basically just like talking to people that are involved in the space, running project management, you know, being across Twitter, seeing the day-to-day conversation. Later at night is when I really do my deep work. So this is where I'm writing, you know, papers and blog posts and like developing theses and going very deep on, you know, other ideas that I can't really do in short, like 30 minute blocks. And so the output of those is a lot longer. Things like, you know, the music NFT landscape or the DAO landscape or some of like the pillar pieces that I've written on Mirror. 
I don't really work on those during the day. I kind of save that for after hours and use those as the way to really like refine my thinking and create documents and sort of content that I think can outlast like the day-to-day conversations and kind of be around as more of like a historical artifact that people can always come back to. Wow. Five to 15 calls per day on top of everything else. How long are those calls? 30 minutes. I have this like internal clock where I don't have to look at the clock anymore. I just know exactly when 30 minutes is. And so like, it's pretty funny. Like I don't even have to look at the clock. I'm like, all right, cool. It was good to talk, good to catch up here. The next steps I'll ping you. And then I'll like hang up and I'll look at the clock and it's always like 29 or 30, like every single time. How do you, how do you decide like who to talk to? Does it just come naturally and you just book them in your calendar or do you like have like an active process to like, okay, I should... I should catch up with this person and that person. Um, kind of a mix of both. You know, I'm an advisor across a lot of projects since that typically is a recurring either weekly or monthly call. And so I'd say like at least once to three times a week, I have sort of an outstanding recurring call with either a project that I'm advising with um, a fund manager that I catch up regularly with like an artist that I talk to pretty regularly. And then, um, you know, thankfully my assistant, Robert, who I brought on recently has been really helpful in just like directing that calendar. And so basically just trying to recognize like what are calls that I think are value added to me and what are ones that aren't. And I think that right now just helping to propagate like the narrative around the sector that I'm interested in has been like very like outward facing where a lot of my calls are either with like people that don't really get the sector and want to learn more or it's with someone that's like very new to the space and developing an idea around how they want to build in the space. And so I'm just kind of there to help advise on like, keep it simple, don't overcomplicate it, just do it, like help people kind of clear their blockers so that they can have an impact. But um, yeah, I'd say it's not really like a formal process. It's just kind of like whoever kind of passes the vibe check, you know, that's that's the signal. And if we take a call and it's not valuable, I'll stay in touch with you on Telegram. But like I try and make sure that like I really use my calls productively to help make sure that they're like growing towards something that I'm uh, really interested in at that point in time. Got it. Okay, we don't have a lot of time left, so let's dive into uh, the next narratives. What do you think are some important narratives, some important shifts? And I know we both participate in one of them, but what do you anticipate will happen in the next two, three years in in Web3? Yeah, so I'm going to take a moment just to kind of recap. Um, We talked a lot about DeFi and sort of my involvement in that. I think the next crucial piece here was like the start of DAOs and social clubs. And so DeFi was this awesome industry, you know, everyone was doing trading tokens and like doing lending protocols and whatnot. But I kind of woke up one day and was like, okay, I don't really love finance as an industry. I think it was great because I was able to make some money trading it, but this wasn't really what drove me. And so it was sort of this early chapter around like social clubs that helped me recognize like what the type of work that I like to do in Web3 was. And so um, my friend Trevor came to me and he basically said like, hey, I'm starting this DAO called Friends with Benefits. It's basically a group chat where you hold tokens and get access to a Discord server. I think at that point he had started it like on Sunday and I think we met on like a Tuesday here in LA or something like that. And I was like, okay, this is cool. Like, let's just get all of our friends into a chat group and see what happens. And that sort of early attention around FWB sort of sparked this wider wave around like social tokens. That's why I got really involved with projects like Seed Club where Jess was just in the early stages of thinking through it. Um, Forefront where Carlos was kind of going from being like a designer to running this like media blog. I was like actively working with people like Alex Mazmej and RAC on their social tokens and, you know, just trying to figure out how to like really evolve the narrative around creators within Web3. Um, you know, I was helping out a project called Rally with like a lot of their creator coins and talking to their creators on what to do. And it really just became this like sector where it shared a lot of the same principles of DeFi, where we were like thinking about things like liquidity pools and like how to really run governance and whatnot. But it was through the lens of like just having people in a chat group. And so I'd say at that point in time, I started to recognize that I really love just helping to connect the dots between the tech part of web three and sort of like the culture and human part of it and that's kind of what led into um you know i'm gonna go somewhat fast since we're a little bit short on time here but 
started working for a project called Audius, which is a music streaming platform that I was extremely thankful to be working for. Um, had the opportunity to move out here to LA. And at that point, I was working across both Audius and FWB at the same time. Um, helped to launch the Audius token amongst like a couple other tokens with FireEyes DAO. And then, you know, NFTs really came into the picture and it kind of became this like whole cultural zeitgeist where it was like, I had FWB going, I had Audius going, we had like, you know, all these airdrops happening. And then like CryptoPunk started to be a narrative. And then like, Board Apes started to be a narrative and then Nifty Gateway started to be a narrative. And very slowly you started to realize that the attention was shifting from very financial focused markets in DeFi to very like cultural first markets in terms of DAOs and NFTs. And I just jumped into that head first. You know, that's why I really started to see a lot of growth in my personal brand and on Twitter and whatnot, because I was not afraid to say like, hey, I want to trade art and culture like that actually very much stood out to me in a way that I think a lot of people were hesitant around. And so especially when I moved here to LA, I started to develop a brand for myself around like this topic of the creator economy. I was writing a lot more actively. I was doing more tweet storms. I was helping artists think through like their job strategy and governance. And that really became the pocket that I grew a brand for myself around was just like thinking about the ways to connect culture with Web3 in a very meaningful way. Got it. And that naturally led to your first passion and what you studied, right? Music and, and music NFTs. I was just going to say that um, that was a really like natural stepping stone where like broadly DAOs were exciting to me. The idea of like putting people in a group chat and giving them a bank account to solve whatever problem they wanted. That design space was cool and it was like very culturally relevant, but it became very like broad. Like a DAO could be anything from like, you know, people buying fine arts, people like starting a sports team to like, you know, like having a golf club, et cetera. And like all that was really fascinating to me, but I felt like it didn't really, the term DAO just got too big. And so I wanted to go deeper. And at that time, you know, um, early platforms like catalog and sound were popping up, you know, music NFTs were becoming sort of more of a narrative for emerging artists. And so that was really my opportunity to say like, Hey, I can go a little bit deeper on this sector. I can have more of an influence here and I can do it around creators that I've already followed for years as just like a fan of music and start to cultivate, you know, what is now like the web three music ecosystem and where I spend most of my time because it really connected my passions of music with web three in a way that felt very meaningful that just weren't really a reality up until this point in time. Got it. How do you see, so going back to the narratives, how do you see these things changing? Like, what do you see as the catalyst for the next run? What do you think needs to happen? I believe the next catalyst is tokenized media. So in this last run, we created an entirely new wave of culture. We were trading crypto punks, board apes, squiggles, you know, like all these crazy crypto related projects that didn't really have any like connection to like the outside world. I think that tokenized media will drive the next bull market because we're going to start collecting things that we all already know and love every day. So like, for example, songs, like everyone knows music, everyone plays like their biggest song on the radio or plays their biggest song on Spotify. I don't think it's unrealistic to think that we will collect songs as a way to sort of like have a deeper relationship with music. If we look at that as a lens, then you have things like collecting TikToks or collecting blog posts or collecting um, podcasts or YouTube videos or any of these things that have like sort of mass market potential. I think instead of us having to recreate new forms of verticals of culture, like, you know, PFPs or board apes or crypto punks, et cetera, I think we're just going to create markets for the type of content that we already consume every day. And I think the name of the game for the next bull run will basically be someone's ability to identify viral content and then collect that in the form of an NFT or whatever comes next. I don't know what the next like term sector industry will be, but my thesis is it's something around connecting and collecting um, content and then the ability to invest natively into creators and brands that historically have not had asset classes that you can really make uh, a financial relationship for yourself by trading, you know, assets that have historically not been able to be collected or traded in the first place. 
Okay, that's interesting. Definitely something to keep an eye on. And you've positioned yourself accordingly in the subsector of music. You launched your own fund, $10 million fund. Uh, you're going to invest primarily in uh, companies that are facilitating music NFTs, but also in artists and in their communities. Do you want to talk a bit more about the way you... I think it's interesting to find out why you chose that allocation between the percentages and how do you see the fund, the fund evolving over the next few years? Yeah, so I would say um, the vast majority of the fund is being invested into companies. I think this is really important because... I'm really excited about the idea of investing in artists. I'm really excited about collecting music NFTs, but the reality is those markets are extremely niche right now. You know, from like a fund's return perspective, being able to invest in venture rounds that have the capacity to get, you know, larger firms involved. I think that that's my main focus because it just feels realistic to me. I'm extremely passionate about music as a vertical. And when it comes to capital allocation, being able to have ownership stake in like, quote unquote, the next Spotify or the next SoundCloud, like that feels like the most obvious bet to me. But if you start to like zoom in a little bit more, um, I mentioned new asset classes. I think that investing in artists is fascinating. I think right now we can sort of collect NFTs as a pass through to have exposure to an artist's career. But I think there's better vehicles to be able to invest in like the entirety of an artist brand. And so a very small allocation of the fund will be allocated towards, you know, artists specifically. And what this means is like setting up companies for an artist, helping them sell off a small percentage of equity, and eventually over time creating more market opportunities where you can sort of buy into creator's brand and have that be underpinned by very clear, succinct verticals rather than sort of the social tokens of the past that were just like residually tied to a creator. You know, I think that this next generation of investing in creators will be like much more tied to their performance on something like Spotify or their like touring history or their NFTs and just creating vehicles that feel like a lot more formal. And then for the very last smallest allocation, I'm a huge collector of music NFTs. I think that these early music NFTs will have an immense amount of value at some point in the future. You know, if you were someone who was buying early X copies or early Beeple works, I think that we can see that those artworks ended up performing extremely well. And so from the fund, I wanted to set aside a very small uh, portion of funds to really collect early works from like the artists that I think are going to be the leading voices of this next generation of music. And rather than trying to buy like a million random music NFTs, try and develop a thesis around what does it look like for a fund to be buying, um, you know, 5% of all the NFTs from a creator that I believe will have like a very long career and doing whatever I can to sort of balance out the portfolio between early stage equity and companies, equity and artists, and then music NFTs from the creators themselves. And I think across the board, you start to see this picture where the fund kind of has full exposure to like every aspect of a creator's career and economy all sort of wrapped up into one vehicle that is this fund called Coop Records. Very cool. I, I really like uh, how eloquent you are about everything. Like when you talk, you're just like very efficient with your words and you just hit everything. And with your thesis around music NFTs, it's the reason I'm collecting as well. Because if you look at the, um, like the mania in 2021 with NFTs, a lot of it was, hey, look, there's this project called Ether Rocks, which are rocks from like 2017. People would be grabbing onto any like any of the, the earliest projects. It didn't matter what they did. But if they were super early, they were considered OG and therefore they had value. So if we have like a speculative mania in a few years or whenever on music NFTs, of course, whatever the consensus deems to be the OG performers and the top performers in a few years, their earliest works, which now you can get for like pretty cheap if you think about it with ETH price going down and everything. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an illiquid bet, but if it pans out, then it's a really good bet in the future. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I want to quickly comment on that just to respond. Um, 
I used to just collect Web3 asset, like music NFTs for fun. Like I used to collect music NFTs just to like support my favorite creator, support like a song that I found from SoundCloud like 10 years ago. But in the last like three months, I think there really is like a place for this industry that's like much bigger than just like speculative mania. Like hopefully this goes up 100x. Like when I talk to artists that are living here in LA, there's like a really big push around like independence. You know, I think most artists are recognizing that they can you know, really build their brand in house, they might not need like a million dollars from a label, they might not need to like sign away their next three projects. And so I guess what I want to articulate here is like, music NFTs are not only a bet on like what NFT will go up 100x, like, sure, I hope that that happens. But more importantly, it's really just showing artists that there is a new path forward here around independence, like your ability to really build your own team to build your own collector community to build your own fan base. And so it's like really important with what's happening in music right now. And I've been saying recently, like, Web3 music is not about the technology. It's about like the artists that are using the technology. And so something that I've been thinking a lot more about is like, sure, there's going to be music NFTs. I think that every song should have a music NFT with it. But I'm not like riding home this narrative that like the NFTs are the godsend here. I think it's really just the narrative that there is going to be a new generation of artists that come up using this vertical as their bedrock in the same way that there is a wave of artists around like Napster, SoundCloud, Spotify, etc. And our goal as creators and as collectors in this industry is to really find you know, read those tea leaves, like I was saying earlier, and find those artists that are sort of coming up natively using this technology. And if you can do that, having exposure through their NFTs, I think is going to be an extremely interesting position to be in, because not only are you going to be able to make some money off of it, but you're probably going to get to meet the artist along the way. And I think that potential to really tie together your personal interest with a little bit of financial upside too, I think that's an opportunity that we've never seen before and one that I'm really excited about in the future. For sure. I mean, I cannot wait for my favorite DJs to start releasing music NFTs so I can I can buy the whole thing. And that's how I got into music NFTs in the first place. One of the producers that I was following like a year ago just launched music NFTs. I bought them and now like I hang out with him every time I travel to his city. Uh, we're friends and I never imagined that to be possible, which is really cool. Um, where should what should people I mean, people can find you everywhere, you know, like you do a lot of stuff, but what do you want to direct them to and what should they what should they follow? Where should they go? What should they check out? Yeah, so I would say um, main place to keep up with my work would be on Twitter at Koopa Troopa. I write a weekly newsletter called This Week in Music NFTs. It's free to subscribe. And in five minutes or less, you can read about everything that I'm following in the sector. Um, the fund that I launched is called Coop Records. You can find that at cooprecords.xyz or on Twitter at cooprecords.xyz. And then I would say broadly, if you're looking for more of my on-chain activity, um, I'm a big collector on platforms like Sound. I'm really active across different artist projects like Daniel Allen and Roki, uh, a couple others. So I would say, yeah, if you're interested in following my work, just check out my Twitter. You're going to see that I'm pretty much entirely talking about music NFTs. And from there, I think it'll lead you down a couple of rabbit holes that are exciting to follow moving forward. That's super cool, man. Thanks for the chat. It was a pleasure. Thanks, man. First episode in the books, baby. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>